Hello, and welcome to the Investment Week podcast for August, where we analyse the biggest investment news stories and speak to leading investors about the most important issues on their minds. I'm your host, Anna Fedorova. I am news editor at Investment Week. Investment Week has been the premier publication serving professional investors in the UK since 1995. You can find out more about us by visiting www.investmentweek.co.uk. In this episode of the podcast, we are talking about passive investing and how it has grown in popularity as active managers have struggled to find value in current markets. Fund rating agencies and wealth managers have been adding passive research to their funds, including the likes of FE Trustnet and Charles Stanley. With me in the studio to talk about the trend is Ben Seeger-Scott, Director of Investment Strategy at Tilney Best Invest. Thanks for joining me, Ben. Now, passives have been taking in money at a record pace. What has been driving this flow of money? Well, Anna, I think there's been several factors behind it. Um, perhaps most notably is a, a focus on cost. Clients are very cost sensitive and we've seen trackers have already been cheap for a while, but recently we've seen what effectively amounts to a price war uh, and passive providers both on the traditional side and on the ETP side cutting costs aggressively. Mm. And I think clients are now particularly sensitive to cost really for, for two reasons. First is the availability of these cheap trackers, but also if you think oh, there is a sense that there's a low growth environment out there and when returns are that much lower, costs become a much more key consideration. Um, so I think cost is, is a main driver, but trackers have been around for a while, so part of the, the reason might be around accessibility. And I think as we've seen more platforms become available, uh, particularly online platforms, it's much more easy for a client to simply go to an online provider and buy an ETF, buy a, a passive fund, whereas before it's probably uh, a lot more involved. So I think those are reasons that make them more accessible and more attractive mm. as instruments as to why they might want to, to buy a tracker in the first place. One of the reasons investors favour trackers in certain circumstances is they're good asset allocation instruments. And arguably over the last five or so years, there's been a lot of big geopolitical uh, and macroeconomic news. Investors want to get in the market first um, and look for these big broad market shifts, so big moves mm. in the UK stock market or in the US stock market or, or gilts or, or whatever else. And an easy way to get that first and foremost is through a tracker and then perhaps think later whether or not they might want to use an active manager. So what kinds of asset classes is it best for investors to access through sort of passive exposure then? I think passives on both sides work particularly well in large liquid and transparent markets. So the most popular markets traditionally um, for UK investors have been the FTSE 100, the S&P 500 over in the US. Um, Also gilts, Gilts have been fairly popular. Mm. It's a very large uh, and liquid market. It's also a sort of area that's difficult for active managers to add meaningful value after fees. So these led themselves very well to, to those those sort of exposures, as is gold. Gold is uh, often accessed through an exchange-traded commodity rather than an exchange-traded mm. fund. But gold is very popular with a lot of investors. It's pretty simple, it's straightforward, uh, and it's a good, good route to, to access that market. I think on the flip side, the harder areas tend to be the less liquid areas. I think bonds are interesting. Obviously, we say gilts tend to lend themselves very well to passive investment. Mm. Corporate bonds at the more liquid end um, are fine. I think when you start getting into high yield and particularly niche parts of the market, they do become a little more challenged, perhaps not day to day. But if liquidity starts to become an issue, then those sort of Mm. passive areas could could face headwinds. And of course, alternatives broadly um, are, are difficult to replicate, particularly physical property uh, and absolute return vehicles, 
really, even though some groups are, are attempting to access these areas largely using proxy investments, um, passive exposure isn't well suited to these sorts of markets. And that's, of course, because we expect sort of daily liquidity or kind of intraday ongoing liquidity from these passive vehicles. Yes. And, and not only do the passives need daily liquidity at sort of the prime level where or at the ETF level, the exchange level, being able to buy and sell uh, the ETFs. Ultimately, if there are net flows in or out, the provider, either of a tracker or uh, an ETF, needs to be able mm. to buy and sell the underlying. And obviously, it's, it's much more difficult if the underlying isn't liquid. It hasn't been just sort of the um, the FTSE 100 and the S&P 500 um, kind of vanilla type um, investments that have been popular. So passives have been getting more sophisticated. What developments have we seen in particular? They have. Um, as you say, the initial round of uh, passives have been in the traditional indices. But as the market has developed and matured, I think We've seen a, a large increase in the number of ETFs and passives available. Actually, it's tended to be more in the ETFs than in the traditional passive side. And I think there's been two broad themes. One has been uh, a lot more availability of specific sort of targeted beta products. So that's single country or single sector, allowing investors to very much tailor and, and fine tune their portfolio. But also what I would or what is considered by the, the market to be smart beta which is a catch-all term for any index that's selected or weighted based on alternative methodology to the main index. And those can be incredibly complex that require you know, supercomputers mm. to do all the calculations, or they can be quite simple. So for example, you can take the MSCI World, which is market cap weighted, is the traditional index. Something like a GDP weighted index mm. would be an example of a smart beta product. So they can be quite simple, or they can be very complex. And what can be the dangers of passive investing then? What what kind of things should investors watch out for? I think one thing to remember about passive investment, they're driven by a purely quantitative mechanical process. That can be fine nine times out of ten, but sometimes if you have a market crash, remember whereas an active manager might see the danger in the market, may take defensive action moving to more defensive asset classes or hoarding cash, uh, an index will by, by definition go down. So a passive will follow a market quite lemming-like. Um, off the cliff. Mm. So there's no human intervention which might require the investor to be a little bit more active overall. Um, I think it's also important that investors make sure they understand the index they're invested in. Obviously on the surface that can be quite simple. Everyone knows the the FTSE 100 for example. And we mentioned before some of these alternative indices which are a little more complex. But even some of the, the fairly obvious indices such as emerging market indices aren't always completely obvious. So for example if you invest in emerging markets, say an MSCI index or a FTSE 100 index, well, actually, one of those indices has a 14% exposure to Korea, the second largest exposure, and one of them doesn't. So it's really important that investors drill down and understand exactly what they're investing in. And we have also written a number of articles about the difficulty of comparing the costs of passive funds. So why is this so tough, and what's the best course of action for investors to take? I think a side effect of having very low annual management charges is that other charges related to the product become that much more significant. So obviously all of the groups and all of the passive providers provide an ongoing charges figure that broadly covers the management charge and a range of other costs. But what it doesn't include is things like um, the trading costs and certain other costs that are still charged to the fund but perhaps aren't reported. Now you can calculate those or you can estimate those as an investor by looking at what we call tracking difference which is how far the uh, the product itself moves away from the index over a period of time. So that's one cost that he's looking at. 
Another cost, particularly as it relates to exchange-traded products, because they trade on exchange, there are additional costs, brokerage fees, bid offer uh, spreads that need to be paid as well. So you need to really think about what your total cost of investing in these is going to be. Um, so I would always advise uh, investors to calculate their own costs uh, and get a really good estimate for how much they're actually paying overall. Great. Thank you very much, Ben. Now we have news editor Natalie Kenway speaking to Dan Hunbury, a UK equities fund manager at River and Mercantile. Hi, Dan. So you've been adding to miners and people have been expecting some sort of turnaround in this sector, but it hasn't quite appeared yet. So what's your views on, on that? Yeah, our, our view on the mining stocks is very much from a recovery perspective. Um, you know, buying blue chip sort of global leading companies in distressed industries when, when valuations are low can often pay dividends for investors. And it's why we believe that there are contrarian buys in the mining sector at the moment, uh, Rio Tinto, BHP being the, the, the most obvious ones. We focus on, say, BHP, a stock that a few, few only a few years ago displayed many attributes of, of being a high-quality company with high and rising returns, earnings growth, strong balance sheet, and positive momentum. And, and mining stocks are, of course, highly cyclical, and they are largely at the mercy of their underlying resource markets. And four years into the commodity slump and with heightened fears around China's growth, there's evidence, fortunately, that the management of BHP have engaged in sufficient restructuring. We feel that their superior balance sheet and mine quality will see them through the low point of the commodity, this commodity cycle without recourse to shareholders and in all likelihood maintaining their dividends too. And there is a very attractive dividend. BHP is, is yielding 7% at the current £12 share price. Rio Tinto is yielding 6%. So if you look at what BHP have been doing in terms of the restructuring of their businesses, they've got one of the stronger balance sheets in the sector. And following the spin-off earlier this year of South 32, which comprises their silver, coal, nickel and aluminium divisions, they're now left with a core of high quality mines, about 20 mines, uh, focused on iron ore, copper and their coal assets primarily located in Australia and the Americas, so good jurisdictions. And their restructuring program alongside this dis this demerger has included shutting down capital-intensive mines, cutting capital expenditure and cost-cutting. And I think it's evidence, and we do look for evidence within the investment process, um, there's evidence that the BHP management is in cash flow preservation mode. It is doing the right things to, to generate shareholder value. Um, and, I, and I think the capital expenditure on the core mines they've been left, um, that, they, that they're continuing to run, is, is a great deal less than some of those smaller mines they demerged where life extensions are required. So they've also stopped sinking cash flow into their shale gas operations in the US, which was a significant cash drag. So all in all, this cash flow focus is critical to understanding whether we think BHP can get through the bottom of this cycle without recourse to shareholders, and can they maintain um, their business in its current form um, with iron ore prices and oil prices at sort of $50. We think they can. We think that we will see some form of trough um, either in 2015 or 2016. We admit we may be a little early. That's the danger of recovery investing. Um, you could argue we have been slightly, um, slightly early. The last month has been pretty dire for the for the miners but we can now look we're, we're happy to look through the, that cycle and say um, that because these high quality companies have got mines at the lower end of the cost curve that competition will have to eventually come out first and so we're prepared to take a longer term view buy BHP at £12 take that dividend yield of 7% and say actually we're happy to wait and as Sir John Templeton once said and it's one of the quotes we often use um, in some of our um, our reports here is that to buy when others are despondently selling and to sell when others are avidly buying requires, requires the greatest fortitude but often pays the greatest ultimate rewards and I think with the mining sector that's where we are now and um, 
uh, we've certainly been increasing our exposure and we're in the market buying buying again today. for our news segment where we discuss some of the stories which have been making headlines lately and what they might mean for investors. I'm joined by Investment Week's Asset Management Correspondent Alice Rigby. To start off with, we're going to be discussing the half-year results we have seen from a whole host of asset management companies over the past month. So, Alice, now that we have seen the latest figures from the big players in the market, what were the big themes for asset managers? Well, it's been a real mixed picture. So, some have counted some really respectable inflows, but others have seen quite dramatic outflows. One big theme has been a rise in international flows, so money flowing in from international investors, Mm -hmm. which has really stemmed an outflow from UK investors, and that's helped the groups that have seen net inflows. Volatility was also an issue. Um, Lion Trust recorded net outflows during the period, But that AUM has since bounced back. So that was due to market volatility. Mm. And as markets have calmed down, they've seen things recover. Some groups had a really good half. Henderson's recorded a successive period of record inflows. Jupiter and Schroeder's also saw inflows and Mighton saw a turnaround. So it really suffered last year from outflows. But this year, so far, it's seen net inflows. So you mentioned a mixed picture. Which groups um, in particular have struggled and why is that? Well, the groups that have struggled are those that are known for investing in areas that have fallen out of favour in the last Mm. six months. Aberdeen particularly suffered, recording a 9.9 billion net outflow. Four and a half billion Mm. of that came from equities, including global and Asian funds. So that's really a sort of trend in the industry. And 1.4 billion came from fixed income. So again, something we've seen across the industry. M&G also saw rocketing retail outflows of 3.4 billion, with at least one and a half billion of that rumoured to come from Mm. Richard Warner's optimal income fund. And so again, that's the issue with fixed income. And Aviva saw a slowdown in its outflows, but 300 million still flowed from its funds in the first half. And its expenses rose, so it actually saw a fall in profits, which again, the group described as inadequate. So moving on to macroeconomic topics that um, we've covered um, over the past few weeks, the Bank of England has been preparing investors for an eventual rise in interest rates. Um, Although the latest rhetoric from rate setters does remain relatively subdued. So... When can we expect interest rates to rise and what will be the impact? Well, the big news was that for the first time this month, we saw all three key Bank of England data points, its inflation report, the Monetary Policy Committee's vote outcome and their minutes released on the same day, which was called Mm. Super Thursday. However, as one commentator noted to Investment Week, the day itself ended up being a very average Thursday (laughs) That's because the MPC turned out to be a lot more bearish than analysts expected, with only one member voting in favour of a rate rise, and people were expecting to. That's what we were seeing at the end of last year when things looked as good as they are now. That seems to have pushed back the market's expected time horizon for a rate rise from the end of this year to more like the beginning of that next year. And it hit sterling on the day itself, although that's since sort of recovered. However, Mark Carney has warned that rising rates are likely to mean outflows for asset managers as liquidity has been sort of taken for granted in the low rates environment. So which factors are causing uncertainty for the MPC then? Well, one of the big problems is economic data. In its inflation report, the bank 
said that inflation is likely to remain lower for longer than it previously expected, putting little pressure on rates. That's really been prompted by the falling energy prices, they're still struggling now, and the staggering strength of sterling, which I think is still unexpectedly strong. Mm. The bank now expects inflation to pick up at the start of next year, but we've seen continually since this process Mm. that those expectations have not been met. And market uncertainty over recent months, not least the Greek crisis, was also an issue factored in by the committee. However, the committee is expecting interest rates to reach a higher level in three years' time than previously thought, so it really was a mixed picture. Um, Now, that's all we have time for today. We would love to hear your comments and ideas for future podcasts if there are any particular topics you would like us to cover. You can contact me via email at anna.fedorova, that's spelled F-E-D-O-R-O-V-A, at incisivemedia.com. Thank you for listening. 